Okay, John chapter 1, if you've got your Bibles, you want to turn there with me, it'll be on the screen, but it's always good to stay in practice of reading through your own Bible. Um, long chapter, we won't finish it again today, but we will continue on verses 29 through 34. I'm going to read those verses right now. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit, and I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. God bless you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for a great morning so far, great time of worship, communion, wonderful sharing from our friend John. We ask now that you bless this time of study in your word, Father. We pray that your Holy Spirit would impart those truths to us today that you want us to receive and it, that your word would have an impact in our lives and bring forth much fruit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're picking up the story here. Remember that John had been approached by these priests and Levites who were sent by the Pharisees to question him as to who, who, who he was, who are you, who, who, who are you. Well, the next day, so this is the day after John's encounter with the priests and Levites, he saw Jesus coming toward him. From what we read in the following verses, it would appear that they are still at Bethany beyond Jordan, Bethabara. Remember the baptismal site there on the east side of the Jordan? It's where John was baptizing. And he says, Behold, so... We see as we go through this, this is a public proclamation in front of John's disciples. Remember we learned last week that John also had disciples. And some of them were actually intimidated by Jesus' growing popularity. Although John made it clear that Jesus was far superior to himself and that he must decrease but Jesus must increase. So it's a public proclamation in front of John's disciples and anyone else that was there at the time who perhaps had come to be baptized. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so this is a direct reference by John to Jesus being the fulfillment of the Passover Lamb. We celebrated that this morning in our communion. Jesus is the fulfillment of Passover and he celebrated that last Passover meal with his disciples and put forth the unleavened bread, the matzah, which was prepared in haste. Remember God told the children of Israel, you've got to be ready to move, you've got to be ready to march. Prepare your bread in haste without yeast. And of course, yeast in the Bible is symbolic of sin. And then they were to slaughter the lamb, put the blood over the doorposts, the doorway of their home so that the death angel would pass over. And Jesus presented himself to his disciples as the fulfillment of Passover. And here at the very beginning of his 
public ministry, which really hasn't even begun yet. John's there preparing the way of the Lord, and he points to Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Both John and Jesus knew from the outset what Jesus had come to do and what his destiny was, to die on the cross for the sins of the world. Verse 30, John the Baptist still speaking. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. And so we, we talked about this last week, the eternal coexistence, pre-existence of Jesus with God the Father. The Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Jesus identified himself as I am. And so John also makes that, he reiterates his statement from the previous day regarding Jesus' superior position. And we also looked at the scripture that talks about the fact that John, Jesus is the bridegroom and John is the friend of the bridegroom. John 3.29, he who has the bride, that's the church, the body of Christ, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, that's John the Baptist, who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled, says John. He must increase, but I must decrease. And you know, we could all make that statement, and it would be perfectly accurate, that as we grow in Christ, now if let's be honest, it's not always the case, and some of us are needing more work than others, but the idea that as you come to Christ, as you acknowledge Him as your Lord and Savior, as you're born again by the Spirit of God, He should increase and we should decrease. The people would see less and less of us and more and more of Jesus. Paul said, I no longer live. I am crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. And that's something we should all aspire to. Verse 31, I did not know him. Isn't that interesting? Now, we know that John and Jesus were cousins. Their mothers were cousins. Mary went to visit Elizabeth, John's mother, when she was expecting John and when Mary was in the early stages of her pregnancy. But even though they were cousins, they'd apparently never met. They lived about 100 miles apart. Jesus up in Galilee, John down in Judea. They grew up 100 miles apart, as I said. Or perhaps, here's another possible take on this. John meant that he had not yet known Jesus to actually be the Messiah, the Son of God. And we find in the Scriptures that at one point he did have some doubts. Matthew 11:12. when John had heard in prison, this is after John's already baptized Jesus and everything, after he's already pointed him out, as the Lamb of God. When John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, the miracles, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Isn't that interesting? I don't know about you, but I kind of find it encouraging that even somebody as great as John the Baptist could have had a moment of doubt. But I think what happened is this. 
even though John anticipated, had spiritual insight that God had given him regarding the mission and ministry of Jesus, I don't think John necessarily anticipated that he himself would be imprisoned and ultimately beheaded. And it would seem that John's imprisonment created a momentary doubt in his mind regarding the identity of Jesus. Wait a minute. If my cousin here is the Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the Messiah, and I prepared the way for him, why am I in prison now? Can you relate to that? Luke 7:18. The disciples of John reported to him concerning all the things, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? So... Very interesting. So when John says, I did not know him, perhaps they'd never met, even though they were related. But perhaps that was also an indicator that John, at least in the beginning, was not sure of who Jesus really was. John knew that the launching of his public ministry, oh, I skipped this part here, here we go, but that he should be revealed to Israel Therefore, I came baptizing with water. So John, like Jesus, had been preparing his whole life for this mission. Under the guidance and direction of his father, Zechariah, and the Holy Spirit, they were about six months apart in age, so they both launched their public ministries, if you will, or God launched them at 30 years of age. And he recognized that the revealing of the Messiah to the people of Israel would come about as he went before him, baptizing with water, calling the people to repentance in order to prepare their heart to receive Jesus as their Savior, their Mashiach, the Messiah. Luke 3, 2, When Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. So that's an alternate rendering of John's father's name, Ze Zechariah or Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. So to prepare the hearts of the people to receive their Messiah, he was calling them to repentance. We know what that means. It means to turn and go the other way, turn away from a life of sin and turn towards God to follow after God, to repent of your sins. Remission of sins, we know that term remission because we hear it a lot in the modern world in terms of remission of cancer and so forth. They're in remission. It's been abated. Uh, the, the effects of it have been ceased. And both John and Jesus, as I've said many times, their first statement as they came out publicly was, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. We now have a large number of false teachers, false pastors out there who no longer believe in using the word repent. Instead of telling people that they need to repent and turn to God, they basically tell them, just come as you are, but don't, you don't have to change. Just, God loves you just like you are. Well, that's very true, but if you want to have a relationship with God and have a life with God, and have eternal life with God, it involves confessing your sins before God and repenting. And that's not talked about a lot in today's world. 
And so it's led a lot of people into a false hope, a false belief system that is not true Christianity, true biblical Christianity. You guys all know this. It's always good to remind ourselves though, right? Okay, verse 32. And John bore witness saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove and he remained upon him. So this is, this is a different take. It's a more abbreviated description of what we read about in Matthew regarding Jesus' baptism. John testifies, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained on him. If you go to Matthew, we get the more detailed account of Jesus' baptism, Matthew 3.13. Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? Again, he who comes after me is preferred before me. Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So Jesus, who knew no sin, didn't need to be baptized. And we know that baptism is symbolic. It's an outward act that's a reflection of what's in our hearts, that we identify uh, with God, with Jesus Christ, and again, in confession and in repentance of our sins, acknowledging that through the blood of Christ, our sins have been washed away, we've been forgiven. And Paul talks about in the book of Romans that baptism is also identifying with Christ in his death, because when you go under the water, it symbolizes burial, and when you come up out of the water, it symbolizes resurrection and new life. Jesus, the Son of God, God incarnate, did not need to be baptized, but he did it to set the example for the rest of us to fulfill all righteousness. And we know in spite of Jesus' efforts to fulfill all righteousness, which he was, by the way, 100% successful at doing, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders in Israel were always trying to find something to criticize him about. They criticized him for eating with tax collectors and sinners. He said, I, didn't, I came to save that which was lost. Right? The healthy, the well, don't need a physician. I came to seek out those that are sick. But in actuality, we're all sick. We all need a Savior. We're all sick from sin. And they criticized John the Baptist on the one hand because he was uh, apparently a Nazarite, didn't drink wine, didn't do any of that, uh, very much on the very conservative side of things. And then Jesus hung out with tax collectors and sinners and did drink wine and so forth, so they accused him of being a wine-bibber or a drunkard, and then they ragged on John for the exact opposite. And that's how it is with legalism, folks. Sadly, the church for centuries has been plagued with legalism. And it started with the Pharisees, and there are modern Pharisees today. And one of the signs of legalism is that they expect you to do things that they themselves do not do. They hold you to a higher standard than they hold themselves. But the whole idea that we're saved by grace through faith, that doesn't give us a license to go out and sin, but it gives us wonderful hope that when we do fall short, when we do sin, God is there to forgive us, to pick us up, and keep us going in the right direction. 
Let's continue on here, Matthew. Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him, but when he had baptized Jesus, when he had baptized Jesus, came up immediately from the water, and beheld the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And so that's what John is referencing here in John chapter 1, where John the Baptist bore witness saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained on him. And so again, as we see John preparing the way for the Lord, it appears that he fully understands who Jesus is and what he's come to do. But then at that point where John wound up in prison, he had a little momentary lapse there. He wanted to make, if I'm going to die for you, Jesus, I want to make sure you're really the guy. And that's understandable, isn't it? So we don't fault John for that. Verse 33, I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So John reiterates here that he had no prior knowledge of Jesus before they met at the River Jordan. Perhaps he's making the point that there was no plotting or collusion going on between the two of them. Everything the people were witnessing had been orchestrated by God, not by man. It wasn't like John and Jesus met up somewhere maybe halfway between Galilee and Judea and, and plotted this whole thing out. Okay, you're going to go first. You know, that's not how it happened. It was totally orchestrated by God and by the Holy Spirit. He who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He, this is God the Father, He's the one who sent John to baptize with water and told John how he would recognize Jesus the Messiah. And this is how you would recognize him, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him. Which is exactly what happened when John baptized Jesus, confirming his identity. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So while John's baptism was largely symbolic, again, it's just an outward expression of what God is doing in your heart. And so we know that many have been baptized, perhaps who weren't sincere, and especially for those groups who practice infant baptism, an infant has no possibility or capability of repenting, right? Baptism is something that should happen at an age of accountability, which is different for everybody. Some, some children are able to comprehend on a very simple, basic level the gospel at a very early age. Some it's a little longer. I think, and God is the one who holds us accountable, so he's the one who knows where each person's age of accountability lands. But no one should be baptized until they get to that point where they're able to make a conscious decision to commit their life to Christ. So infant baptism really isn't biblical. We know that. John's baptism was symbolic. But Jesus would literally immerse people in his Holy Spirit. That's what John is saying here, Matthew 3.11. Indeed, I baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, 
whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. Again, so we see this repeated emphasis on the, the true, genuine humility of John the Baptist. He was a dynamic individual, called by God, anointed by God. Jesus said he's the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets, and yet he's the least in the kingdom of God because under the new covenant, we're all one in Christ. We're all equal. We're a royal, royal priesthood, a holy nation. I indeed baptize you with water under repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Acts 1-4, being assembled together with them, Jesus, this is their final meeting before he ascends into heaven, about uh, 40 days after the resurrection. He commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, and this is not an American Express commercial. Don't leave home without it. But it is similar. He commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Very key phrase here in verse 4 of Acts 1. The promise of the Father. What is it? John 14, 15. John addressing, or Jesus addressing his disciples here. If you love me, keep my commandments. That's really important, folks. Again, this modern fake gospel. Nothing about repentance, confession. Just, oh, God loves you. Just receive his love. Wait a minute. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Perfectly, 100% of the time? Probably not. But that's the goal, that's the standard, that's what he expects. And the grace comes in, and the mercy, where when we do fall short, he's ready, willing, and able to forgive us. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray to the Father, and he will give you another helper. While Jesus was here on earth, he was their helper. He was their guide. He was their teacher. He was their rabbi. He was their healer. He was their everything. But he told his disciples, I got to go. I can't stay here. I'm going to go to prepare a place for you. I'm going to send you, an the Father will send you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be, will be in you. This is the promise that Jesus is talking about in Acts chapter 1, verse 4. John 16, 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I... They didn't want him to go away. That was driving them crazy. Don't, you can't leave us here. We want to go where you're going. You can't follow me right now. You can't go yet. It's to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you, but if I depart, I will send him to you. And then on the night of his resurrection in the upper room, John 20, 21, and 22, Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. They're hiding, fearful, scared, afraid they're going to be next, they're going to be arrested, they're going to be crucified too. Jesus appears to them. 
Peace to you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them. Remember in Genesis where God breathed life into Adam? He became the first man. He breathes on them, receive the Holy Spirit. And yet, it's not until Acts chapter 2 that we see that outpouring of the Spirit. I think here he is preparing them for Pentecost. So we go to Acts 2, beginning in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, 50 days later, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Prior to this, the disciples were already believers, but they had not yet received the power, the fire. Remember what John said? He will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. If you're on the right side of things, fire is a good thing. It represents power. It represents purifying. How do they purify gold, silver, all these precious metals? With fire, right? They melt them down and they, and they strain off the impurities. God is a God of fire. If you study the Bible, you find that over and over again. That fire, in fact, in the book of Revelation chapter 1, Jesus has eyes like flames of fire. If you're not a believer, the fire is not so good. For the believer, it's a good thing. They, they needed the fire, the power, in order to be witnesses for the risen Christ in a wicked, unbelieving world. Many believers are weak and ineffective because they have not yielded their lives completely over to God. And I remember way back in the, it had to be early 70s, really, Campus Crusade um, had a number of publications. They had the four spiritual laws. Any of you remember that? It would be used to lead people to Christ. But they also had one on the, the Holy Spirit and how does one become filled with the Holy Spirit, baptized with the Holy Spirit. And they talk about its complete surrender. When we first come to Christ, basically it just boils down to the fact that we finally have come to realize and understand that we are sinners, we need a Savior, and we want to live forever with God. We want to be forgiven. We want to be saved. And so we receive Christ as our Lord and Savior. But I don't think any new believer fully understands what it means to be completely yielded to God and sold out to God. And it is a lifelong struggle even to stay in that place. But being filled with the Spirit has to do, if you're filled up with your stuff, there's no room for the Holy Spirit, is there? That doesn't mean he's not there because you couldn't be saved unless he had come into your life and you'd been born again. It's called regeneration. But there's a difference between conversion and immersion. I'll get to that in a moment. Complete surrender, allowing him to baptize us in his Holy Spirit. Acts 1.8, Jesus tells him just before he ascends into heaven, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. Conversion takes place when the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you, born again. Immersion takes place 
I believe, when he comes upon us, the fire, to empower us to be witnesses of his resurrection and to live a victorious life in Christ. This is, as you probably know, one of the most hotly debated topics in the church today. Throughout my entire life as a believer, uh, going back at least to my teen years, although I was saved as a young boy, do we receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit at conversion, or is there a secondary, subsequent work of the Spirit which takes place after conversion? It could be simultaneous, but I contend primarily it is the latter. This is the position that Pastor Chuck Smith held to, as well as many others. Rather than getting tangled up in the weeds, like I say, this is the most hotly debated topics in the church. Rather than getting tangled up in the weeds about that, somebody might tell you, well, hey man, when you got saved, you got it all. You got, you're baptized in the Spirit when you got saved. Well, really then, um, how come my life doesn't seem to give forth evidence of that? Where's the fruit? Right? Dan Bongino, one of my favorite radio talk hosts, always likes to quote from the movie Moneyball where I think it's Brad Pitt's character that says, well, if this guy's such a good hitter, how come he doesn't hit good? Right? If this guy's such a great president, then why is he not a great president? I didn't name any names. Just when you thought I wasn't going to go there today. And so you could say, if this person is a Spirit-filled believer, if they've been baptized in the Holy Spirit, then how come they don't act like it? Hello? Rather than getting tangled up in the weeds, I would simply encourage you to open yourself up to God and all that He has for you. Luke eleven nine through 13. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. That sounds to me like God is encouraging us to be persistent. What do you think? Not lackadaisical, casual, flippant about our relationship with Him. Ask, seek, knock. For everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Well, God just didn't open that door for me. Did you knock? Well, no. You just expected him to flip it open for you, didn't you? You didn't knock. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? And there have been those who say, hey, because when I came back to the Lord, I came back to the Lord in a Baptist church, and they were definitely not down with spiritual gifts, if you will. At least not what they call the sign gifts, the miraculous gifts. And they would say, don't go there, it's dangerous. You might get a demon. Really, you're a child of God, and you're seeking God's best for your life, and you want to be filled with His Holy Spirit, and they're telling you, don't go there, it's scary, you might get a demon. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then being evil, hello, that's all of us. Sorry, all you seeker-friendly, purpose-driven, <laughs> fake preachers. We really are evil. We really are. We really need a Savior. 
If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give what? The Holy Spirit to those who just expect Him to do it automatically. No, it says to those who ask Him. If you sense that you're lacking, I said, don't get caught up in the weeds. Well, I already got all that. Really? Well, where is it? If you already got it, where is it? By their fruits you shall know them. Jesus said that. We're not being judgmental. They say the proof is in the pudding. If you sense that you are lacking in regards to the power of the Holy Spirit, ask, seek, knock. God will not turn you away. Do you believe that? Okay. That's as deep as we're going to go today on that subject, but it is an important subject. Verse 34, I've seen and testified that this is the Son of God. And now this is actually John the Apostle adding his testimony to that of John the Baptist. John's the Apostle, the Apostle is the one who wrote this gospel, but we've been reading the words of John the Baptist, quoted by John the Apostle, but now John the Apostle sticks his two cents in here, if you will. I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. 1 John 1.1. This is such a big part of who John was and what he wrote about. His eyewitness testimony. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled, touched him like Thomas, remember? But they all touched him. Concerning the word of life, big W, that's what he talked about in the beginning of this chapter of John, the gospel, chapter 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, the word was God, and he calls him the word of life. The life was manifested, we've seen and bear witness. Notice how many times he says that. Which we have seen, which we have looked upon, we have seen and bear witness, and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen. You think John wants you to know that he saw it with his own eyes? Absolutely. And he lived to the end of the first century. They tried to boil him in oil and he wouldn't boil. I'll take this guy's word anytime. That which we have seen and heard we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. In addition to the testimony of these two great men, John the Baptist and John the Apostle, John the Beloved, and the other apostles, we've got an overwhelming number of eyewitnesses regarding the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 3. I deliver to you, first of all, that which I received, Paul writes, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, he was buried, he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, or Peter, then by the twelve. After that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present. When Paul wrote this, somewhere around 60 A.D. or so in that time frame, 30 years after the resurrection, more or less, most of those 500 were still alive that had been eyewitnesses seen Jesus in his resurrected state. But some have fallen asleep. Some have died. After that, he was seen by 
James, then by all the apostles, then last of all he was seen by me, Paul writes, on the road to Damascus, remember? As one born out of due time. He was the only apostle who was not with Jesus during his earthly ministry, but God specifically chose Saul, who became Paul. In fact, he went out of his way to meet him on the road to Damascus. But Paul gives us that whole long list of eyewitnesses, just like John, the beloved. We have seen. We testify to you. Jesus proved his divinity many times over, but the most dynamic proof of his godhood is his resurrection from the dead. And that was what Jesus commissioned him. You shall be power. You shall have received power to be my witnesses. And what were they to be witnesses of? The fact that he had risen from the dead because that's the whole ball game right there. In the first chapter of his gospel, John says it all, folks. This is the Son of God. Let's stand. Uh, as we go to the Lord in prayer, if you have a prayer request this morning, please raise your hand. God sees your hands. God sees all. Thank God. But put your hands down now for a minute. I want to have another special raising of hands. If you're here this morning and you sense that you need the power of the Holy Spirit in your life that it's lacking, you're not where you need to be, where you want to be, where God wants you to be, I want you to raise your hand. And I would encourage, I want those around you, look, look at those who have raised their hands right now. Pray for them as we're praying. You pray for them that God will pour out His Holy Spirit upon them, okay? And Father, we will start with that this morning because we recognize how important that is and Lord, we'd never mean to overlook the importance of the power of your Holy Spirit in our lives. And Lord, we confess that sometimes perhaps we do shy away because of all the abuses that have taken place, all the wrong emphases on the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit. And yet, Lord, we have to acknowledge based upon what we read in your word that it's real, that it's true, that we need it, and that's your desire that every one of your disciples, your children, your followers would be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Not only conversion, but immersion. And so we pray right now, Father, for each one out here that's raised their hands specifically desiring to be filled with your Holy Spirit. Lord, we're not going to get caught up in the weeds about how, when, why it happens. We just know we need it. And you told us to ask, to seek, to knock. And you said you love to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. So right now we ask. Lord, however you want to do it. Our only expectation is that you would give us what you promised. And it is the promise of the Father, the power of the Holy Spirit. So right now, Father, I ask that you would pour out your Spirit upon each one that is seeking that this morning. And Lord, give us peace in our hearts knowing that... Uh, when we ask, we will receive. That's what your word tells us. This, if it's something you want us to have, you will not hold it back from us. So I just pray right now, Father, for, that you would baptize your people with and in your Holy Spirit, Lord. We know that the Holy Spirit comes to live in us, 
And that's how we become born again. We know that your Holy Spirit comes alongside us as the paraclete to guide us, to help us, the helper. As Jesus said, I will send you another helper. But Lord, we also know that the Spirit comes upon us to empower us to be uh, effective in our witness and our walk with you. So again, once more, I pray now, Father, for the outpouring of your Spirit upon each one here today. Those that have raised their hands, specifically asking and requesting to receive that power. And Lord, we receive it by faith. We're not looking at looking for some kind of manifestation or a sign or a wonder. We just trust you right now that however you want to do that in our lives, that you are going to give us what you promised and you're going to empower us and enable us to be effective in our witness and our walk. Thank you, God. We praise you for that in Jesus' name. Lord, now lift up the rest of the requests for, for those needing physical healing, whether it be someone in this room or someone who's represented by someone in this room or whether it be somebody watching online. Lord, we thank you that your Holy Spirit is unlimited. Lord God, you are omnipotent, all-powerful, omnipresent everywhere. You're omniscient. You know all things. So, Lord, we know that your power, your might, your ability to heal, to touch lives goes beyond any limitations that we might think of. Lord, you could heal someone all the way around the world right now just as we pray for them here. So we lift up those with physical afflictions for diseases, for, for injuries, for sicknesses, Lord. We pray for encouragement, strength, comfort, relief from pain, and for healing. Thank you, God. And again, help us to receive that by faith, not to doubt or to question but just simply to trust you. And Lord, you are sovereign, you're in control, and if you do allow something in our lives, we know that your intention is to use it for good, but we do prevail upon your grace and mercy for physical healing, for mental and emotional healing, deliverance from anxiety, depression, fear, all those other emotions that come uh, flooding in and, and want to try to take control of our hearts and our minds. Help us to give them all over to you, Lord, we ask your forgiveness for giving way to fear, giving way to doubt, giving way to all these things. We ask that you would heal us, deliver us, set us free. Lord, I'm reminded of that song we sing, Set my spirit free that I might worship thee. Set my spirit free that I might praise thy name. Let all bondage go and let deliverance flow. Set my spirit free to worship thee. Lord, we pray that right now. Lord, we know that these things can hinder us in our worship and in our service to you. We pray for deliverance in Jesus' name. We pray for healing of relationships, for marriages, for friendships, for office relationships, neighborhood relationships. We know the enemy comes to conquer, to divide, to separate us. But you came to unite us and bring us together. One faith, one hope, one baptism, one Lord of us all. We pray that you'd help us to be peacemakers, to be those who would bring forth reconciliation, whether it be in a marriage a friendship, whatever relationship it might be, we ask you to restore, renew, and heal those relationships in Jesus' name. And finally, we pray for financial issues that we struggle with, Lord. We pray for wisdom and guidance with our resources. You'd help us to be good stewards, to honor you with the first fruits, fruits of our income, of our uh, increase, and that you'd uh, help us, Lord, where we fall short, that you'd promise to meet our needs so we just trust you and we thank you and we praise you help us to keep our eyes on you not on men you are our provider we thank you for it we pray for encouragement for hope for strength in the face of 
financial obstacles. And Lord, help us to uh, allow you to bring forth those miracles in our lives that we would not hinder you by trying to fix things that we can't fix, but just to put our trust and our hope in you. And we thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.